Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, This is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. This episode is all about Monash University. You'll find an episode about the University of Melbourne and another about La Trobe University in your feed and on the website. I think on campus what drew me in was Monash was actually really a place of incredible ferment around the war and they, they, a whole series of sit-ins began which is, you know, I forget which hall it was in, a really main, like not just in lecture theatres, but a major hall or theatre, and we'd have visiting speakers. So there was this kind of movement to educate people about the war, which was happening on campus with speakers, and that happened at lunchtime sit-in meetings. And then out of that grew the movement on campus. For reasons we don't really have time to go into here... Monash University ended up being the university in Melbourne with probably the most radical student group for the time. It was called the Monash Labor Club. There could easily be an entire podcast series about the Monash Labor Club and its politics and various significant members. Suffice it to say that by the mid-1960s, it was not affiliated with the Australian Labor Party, because they, the Monash Labor Club, had gone far too far left. Indeed, many of its most prominent members declared themselves communists of one stripe or another. The names Albert Langer and Michael Hyde crop up a fair bit in this episode, as they were deeply involved in all of the student political events happening on campus at this time. If you're interested, Hyde has two books about this period, although the veracity of his accounts has occasionally been questioned. In this episode, you'll hear from Jenny, Kerry, Judith, Liz, Helen, Kay, Andra, Shirley and Martha. They were born between 1946 and 1950, so they're in their teens and early 20s throughout the Vietnam War period. I acknowledged in the episode about the Melbourne University that students who are protesting don't necessarily reflect the opinions of all students. In the June 25th issue of 1968, the Monash student newspaper, Lot's Wife, 
published the results of a poll asking students about their attitudes to conscription. Women made up a third of respondents, with their responses being very similar to those of the men. When asked about the national service system, 83% of all respondents said they didn't support it, and 69% said they supported some form of organised resistance to the existing system of conscription. These numbers suggest that a significant proportion of the student population at Monash did indeed agree with the attitudes of those students who actively protested. As you listen, please remember that I am in no way claiming that this episode is a complete record of what went on at Monash University during this time, even in protesting the war and conscription. We held many meetings. We printed off things um, in our newsletters and all that sort of stuff. We held lots of lunchtime meetings at Monash and, yeah, was part of various organising committees. Did you get involved? In any of the speaking, did you um, get involved in sort of that upfront stuff? Not really. I wasn't very confident. And, you know, when I look back now, I lacked a lot of knowledge, really. I wasn't, I was always, I wasn't a student. I was working at the bookshop and I was always a bit um, intimidated by those people who I thought were my intellectual superiors. I was basically, you know, a, a working class girl, really. Were you involved in those Monash actions in 1968? Yes, yes I was. Yes I was. But you know, the 68 demonstration, you know, the cops were all over the place and they were just picking up people, you know, right, left and centre and, you know, they said that I'd sat down in front of a tram and all this crap, you know, which is totally untrue. Didn't think about it really. I don't know that I would have. <laughs> it's a fairly dangerous thing to do to sit down in front of a tram. But, you know, I got front page of the sun, so that wasn't too bad. Right. How did your family react to you being on the front page of the sun? Well, when I was bailed out, um, I can remember a friend of my father, because my father was a wolfie, and uh, he walked in and he said, what will your mother say? But I think, in a way, they were they were worried about me because they thought, you know, I might um, be injured or something, but they didn't know until the next morning, until they saw us all over the paper. Um, but I think, in a way, they were quite proud, you know, that we were standing up for ourselves. The 1968 demonstration, mentioned just then by Christine Ross, was at the American Consulate in Melbourne. It happened on July the 4th in 1968, and it wasn't only Monash students who were present. It also wasn't organised by Monash students, but a lot of Monash students were definitely involved. Protests had also occurred at the American Consulate in 1967 and would occur again in 1969. The Monash student paper, Lot's Wife, reported on these events. The issue from July 11th, 1967, for example, includes three photos from the demonstration showing several women present. Several other Monash University women that I spoke to were also involved in these July 4th events. Um, from the outside looking in to Monash at the time, the thing that really stands out is the July the 4th oh, yeah. protests. You were involved in yep. some of those. Um, what was the thinking around that? Was it primarily around that American imperialism kind of idea and making yeah, well, a stand we there? Yeah, Most groups, particularly the CPA, they had this view that 
you shouldn't be too radical because you'll drive people away. You've got to bring them into the movement just because they want sort of peace and they want negotiations and things. If you go out and say, you know, smash you as imperialism, and you actually say that it's not. A lot of people thought, well, the war was a sort of mistake or rather than a, um, you know, quite deliberate sort of thing, a a policy, not just some sort of foolish... uh, not knowing what you were doing. So we talked about imperialism, or US imperialism as we called it, and um, also victory to the NLF. And a lot of young people took that up just because it was very bad to say that. <laughs> from the but um, So that's what we were pushing there. And the um, July 4 demonstrations had always been what we would say is piss week. You know, people would go along and they'd sit outside the embassy with candles and... They do vigils and say they're all night and everything. Um, and we we thought, no, we make a much bigger. It, we we we're going to get into this and make a much bigger impact. So, I think July 4, 1968, I remember pretty clearly because we planned it. Which is funny because we had to deny it in court afterwards. <laughs> um, I mean, we didn't exactly plan it, but we you know, had um, we probably I can't remember exactly what we did. I mean, I know that we went along, we had rocks and um, some people had gunpowder in matchboxes which had been taken out of um, crackers, which were were legal then, fireworks. And someone possibly had some petrol. I don't know about that because there was an accusation about it that someone tried to burn the embassy down. I don't remember that we planned anything like that. But the idea was we're going to be right at the head of the demonstration and we're going to really get into it as soon as we got there and um, coordinate a bit. I can't remember what the coordination mm. was. But um, so we got there and the police didn't really expect, they were just used to these more quiet things and then suddenly rocks are flying and there's a great sort of melee, people getting arrested um, and various people charged with riot um, afterwards. And that, to me, that was so. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was fun. Okay, I, I wasn't just. It was like you're outwitting authorities or something and doing better than they are. And see, a number of people got charged with right. Like um, Dave Rubin and someone else went and pulled down the American flag from the flagpole, and that was a bit of a big deal. And he was charged with right. I mean, I actually don't didn't think. He was a bit of a problem in some ways, I suppose. but um, And so was Albert and a, a bunch of other people as well. And I remember that I didn't know much about legal matters, but I'd had heard that you didn't have to answer questions in court. I was really young, I, I, mentally anyway, that, you know, like incriminating questions. Someone had said something about it. So I got to the court and I wasn't charged with anything, but they called me as a witness for the prosecution, just on the spot. And then produced my school bag, which I'd had there for a uni high, university high school school bag, and said it had been found there and it had in it rocks and um, matchboxes full of, um, or at least one full of gunpowder. And I actually don't remember whether I had that matchbox or what I had. So they called me to the stand, so they asked me if it was my... I started answering the questions, you see, at first. I, and people give me looks in the court, like... You know, I'd sworn to tell the truth, not on the Bible, but whatever. Yeah. And then I thought, no, 
I remembered, I said, oh, no, I'm not answering that question because it might incriminate me. Of course, I always thought that was ridiculous. If it's going to incriminate you, you've incriminated yourself anyway. So, because it got to the point of I was going to have to say all sorts of things I didn't want to say. So that was that was in the newspapers, I remember. Um, and I must have seemed a bit silly. But then when it actually went to the county court, and only at that point was Albert, they dropped the charge against everybody else. And this is the funny thing about the planning. Uh, the cops would often be a bit dumb when they're giving evidence. And they had Michael Hyde in the stand as a witness for the pros- you know, the prosecution mm. court. Or maybe, I don't know who called him. But the policeman was reading out what his evidence against Michael. And he was saying that Michael had been calling out, get the eggs, long live Ho Chi Minh, right? And actually he did call that out but in court I think Albert cross-examined him actually he just made the cop look really stupid like who would ever be calling out that I mean how ridiculous get the eggs long live hoji means exactly what Michael would have done we must have had eggs that we're going to throw and he was calling out to someone you know where are the eggs get them I know I remember these things because they were funny um and it was always I think we always had the upper hand for several years but no matter what they did we found a way around it and that was the difference, I think, with our politics in Melbourne in particular, that we sort of kept thinking of ways that we could... For instance, the next year, I think it was the next year, we knew they'd be waiting for us at the consulate, so we decided that instead of doing that, we just marched straight past the consulate. No, maybe it was the year afterwards, I don't remember. And we went to Honeywell, which was had some... And um, attacked that... You know, they were totally surprised because they had the whole... I mean, of course, the whole march didn't know that. It was just yeah. that we would have been in the front. And we said, come on, keep marching. The police are just standing and we just go right past them. Things like that. So I suppose it's a bit like guerrilla warfare or something. And then we were also, we went to um, a demonstration at the Old American Consulate, which was in St Kilda Road. This is the July the 4th. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, so that was a big thing. And um, so tell me more about that. Did you see or get involved in any of the violence at that one? I didn't get involved, but I was very close. I didn't realize how close I was to the front. You know, when I did realize how close I was to the front, I sort of backed away. I thought, look, I don't want to get arrested, even though dad was great and said, look, if anything happens, you can just ring me. Um, but yeah, there was, there was you know, a lot of violence. And the, the horses always were such a the poor horses, you know. The fact that there were horses were was really what created a, a very scary feeling, you know, that you're, you're you know, there and the horses are, are there and somehow, I don't know, it was really interesting, you know, that mm. um, you didn't want to hit a horse but you did want to hit a horse, you know, you kind of... And then, yeah, and the, the Labor Club had all these, I think they handed out something with phone numbers that you could call. Um, my vague memory of that is that. But, yes, that was a very tense, very tense demonstration, yeah. Well, there was 68, July the 4th, the attack on the embassy. I wasn't involved with um, storming the embassy and I wasn't involved with, throwing stones at the embassy, but they were arresting people, right? 
and I got caught up in the emotion of the moment and tried to tear this person who was being arrested away from the cops. And I, when I got, you know, grabbed by a police person, policeman, um, I got another woman arrested because I called for her to try and help me get away. <laughs> so, yes, we got arrested and... I was taken to the Russell Street Watch House. My God, talk about 19th century primitive. Thrown into this pitch black cell. And I'm right, no light, nothing. And and there was some seated toilet in the corner and some blanket that I was almost afraid to put on because I'm sure it hadn't been washed in 50 years. Just thrown in. I also remember being fingerprinted, which I thought was fairly outrageous. I didn't know that they fingerprinted you before, you know, you were found guilty sort of thing, you know. I don't know if that was legal or not, actually. I never bothered to find out. Oh, one of the good things was we could actually call out to each other, you know. So that, that was something. So I didn't feel completely isolated. Anyway, a lot of people raised bail and I don't think I was in there very long. I wasn't in there overnight. It would have been only a matter of a couple of hours, I suppose. It's hard to tell when you're in the dark <laughs> in a 19th century condition. So, and then we came out. I was charged with resisting arrest. That's right. Oh, I know the story I was going to tell you. One of the, the guys who was arrested who was at the desk said this policeman was boasting about how he arrested this woman and got a nice feel of her big breasts. Anyway, I heard that later, not at the time. So it did come to court. I had a lovely lawyer represent me at no charge and he advised me to plead guilty. So I did and got off with a good behaviour These women also participated in somewhat more mellow demonstrations, as Helen McCulloch and Kay Lovett recall. And the council put a ban on us. They wouldn't let us stand on the footpath and so on. And they wouldn't let us hand out pamphlets. And they wouldn't let us approach people and talk with them. So we worked out a tactic. Saturday morning, we'd all go into the city and stand on these street corners with a big poster hanging round our necks saying, I'm against the war in Vietnam. I'd like to talk to you if you'd like to talk to me. And people approached us. You know, that's how we did it. John Price came up with this really good idea. He suggested that we all wear a badge saying, I'm against the war. Vietnam War, I'm willing to talk to you if you want to talk to me, and that we go into the city square on a Sunday morning, Saturday morning, and talk to anybody who wanted to, which we did. And, you know, sometimes we were talking to young soldiers, but because we were women, I mean, they were more interested, I think, to see if they could con us off. <laughs> I don't think anything we said would have made much a difference to them. But yes, that was extremely effective. 
In April 1968, the paper Lot's Wife featured an article from Helen Fletcher and John Price discussing this very tactic. It notes that the people involved would meet at 10am at the city square in Melbourne and then disperse throughout the city in groups of two or three, trying to talk to people about the issues. A couple of months later, in June 1968, a letter to Lot's Wife signed by four people, including one woman, Margaret Indian, affirm that this project definitely has worth. They say that their discussions, quote, stimulate interest with a desire to want to know more, and that, perhaps unsurprisingly, the most receptive conversations have been with young people. Public demonstrations weren't the only things that were going on, of course. The Labor Club had a newsletter called Print. Judith mentions in this following excerpt the need to Ronio the newsletter. Ronioing is an early version of photocopying, but it's a lot more time consuming and a lot more physically demanding. But it was so exciting. And, you know, you arrived at Monash University and the Labor Club was printing print every day. So the first thing you did as you entered the university was picked up your daily issue of print and you that was, you know, your day laid out. And I can tell you because I wrote a history of Greville Street, which I'm not sure if you've seen, but, of course, print was, you know, the Labor Club's uh, metropolitan office was in Greville Street in the bakery and they roneoed print every night down in the bakery and then took it over to Monash University. I mean, it was the most extraordinary, you know, when when you think about what that means, that they were writing, you know, the stuff and then they were roneoing it and that was five days a week during every day that the university was open and everybody picked up their copy of print before they did anything else including all the people who didn't agree, which there were quite a few of. Most of them were in the engineering department, which was so funny that they were. It was so strange. Why were the engineers not against them? I don't understand. Um, and, of course, there were not many women in the engineering department in those days. You just sort of went to uni to um, talk to people and uh, hand out leaflets and go to meetings and write leaflets and... So you got involved in that aspect of, we did all for of that, writing yeah, the whole for time. Is yeah, it print we, already at that print stage? Out daily. Yeah, that's um, extraordinary. That just must have taken. Very, print was pretty clever um, as well. It was humorous. I've um, read bits and pieces of them. A lot of them have been digitised. Yeah, some of them were silly. Some of them were quite good. And um, once it came out seven days a week, it obviously the quality fell. But um, mm. so there was that. And of course. We had to do it on all our gestetners and um, we'd type it with old typewriters yep. and correcting fluid and that sort of thing. So um, you're doing that bit as well? Oh, all of it, yeah. Wow. We did everything. And we got a printing press at one point. That was a nightmare, learning how to use that, and I just went off my head. I remember, you know, you'd be up all night trying to make it work. It was a frenzy. And the thing is, the time moves more slowly, though, when you're younger. Like, I, it was only a few years, but it seems like it went on for ages. Um, but I've forgotten a lot of it, except that I saw, I haven't seen my OZR file, but I saw Albert's and there's a lot about me in there. It's, that made me remember some things. I thought, were we, were we at just one constant meeting? So, and you were involved in, in writing for print and doing the, the actual distribution and so on um, in your time with the Labor Club? 
Yeah, and having meetings there, having discussions. So it was sort of quite a a fertile meeting place for people that had been or were active on campus, but also people from other organisations or outside outside the university. Um, people who weren't attending the university could meet up to and um, discuss tactics, strategies, that sort of thing. I must add that within the protest movement, there was a wide range of views so that there were people that were considered pacifists right through to, at Monash with the Labor Club, people that had more Maoist leanings and they were quite, they were often quite dismissive of people that wanted to take more peaceful approach. For example, we had a debate in the Labor Club, which I spoke against, which was to uh, encourage people to join the army to get access to weapons. <laughs> and there was a motion to endorse that idea, which, if I recall correctly, didn't get through in the end. But um, that gives you an idea of the extreme views, the range of views, you know, from one extreme to the other. Well, I opposed it because I, I just thought it was um, sheer fantasy <laughs> and not at all all practical. And I, I, I guess I supported a more middle ground approach. Uh, when you're writing for, for print, uh, were you mostly writing things like, here's why you should support the Labor Club, here's why you should oppose national service and the war? Is it those sorts of, um, is it that sort of copy that you, you were writing? I think we were trying to write in a more conversational, newsy style, um, but we were writing about wider campus issues too. We had a whole worldview, uh, a philosophy about how things could be different. The last person you heard there, Andrew Jackson, wrote several pieces for Lot's Wife. She had a very long piece in the June 1969 edition called USA, the Villain of the Peace. That's peace spelled P-E-A-C-E, the opposite of war. Um, this article begins with the sentence, The main disruptive force dividing the world today is US imperialism. We went, we did pay stuffs in the middle of the night. We used to go to pay stuffs and, and we... Just on, like, neighbourhood streets? Yeah, yeah, on neighbourhood and in the city. And this was at the height of where the, um, the anti-Vietnam War protesters, particularly, like, the Monash Labor Club was raising money for the NLF. So there was really anyone associated, you know, with even opposition to the Vietnam War was um, really maligned. I mean, you know, we were just you know, pariahs. And um, so we went and did quite a lot of pay stubs. They were the kind of the, the brave things. I remember handing out leaflets in the city and just, um, and we were just, you know, abused and, oh, yeah, this is before, this is two years before the moratorium, you know, and that just shows how quickly the public opinion can change. Um, and um, well, 
so we got we were abused as um, communists, as traitors. We should be thrown in jail, all those kind of things. And so I think some of us felt quite, you know, isolated. So there was a tendency to kind of join together. And that's where the women are really. We were, we were having that that solidarity because there was. I remember there were with the. I, I had a group of about. We had a group of about eight women who were involved in the Monash Labor Club, and then later even beyond that, who were involved in the uh, Vietnam and to Vietnam War activities. And it was the things we did we did together because that there was this. It was bad enough being against the Vietnam War, but being a woman who's being outspoken. And I remember I was I was um, um, waitressing at the time, you know, to to make money to raise my you know for my uni fees. And um, and 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 I mentioned the war to to one of the other people working there, and I was, you know, I thought I'm going to get the sack. I mean, it was just that really that bad. So um, we did a lot of a lot of letterboxing, and I think that one of the some of us in particular were, and women were kind. Of, I thought the women that I was with anyway had a quite a strong view of. Um, that we need to get outside that kind of left block, you know, um, that um, we need to do much more average work to connect with um, um, with the broader community. And, and so there was a lot of letterboxing and some of the places like places that we worked, we worked at, we gave out leaflets and tried to engage in conversation and think, I mean, there were some, you know, there were some pretty adventurous things that were done too, but um, but I, I don't think I had the full courage to. <laughs> I did some, but not. I didn't have the full courage. That's Shirley Winton, and I have to disagree with her here because I think the things she was doing did actually require a lot of courage. Meanwhile, there were other things happening at Monash that were less controversial. An art student named Kay Minahan, for instance, wrote to the paper Lot's Wife in September 67, praising an upcoming campus teach-in. A teach-in is where a bunch of people voluntarily get together to learn about a particular issue, usually something political. In this instance, the teach-in would be about the Vietnam War. And later that month, again in the newspaper, Catherine Letch and V. Simmons, who I think is Virginia Simmons, mentioned by several people I spoke to, both wrote letters upholding the idea that protest was a good thing, explicitly arguing against a letter from a previous edition, suggesting that protest was useless. One of the things I've been interested in throughout this project is not just the actions that women undertook, but also how they understood then, or understand now, their place in the protests. I asked my interviewees directly about this idea of the importance of women being involved. There's a whole episode about this issue, if you're interested more broadly, But for this episode, I'm going to finish by focusing on specifically how women felt about Monash University and the experience there for female students. Some of these women actually weren't particularly interested in the question, which is interesting to me in itself. That is, they didn't see it as a particularly relevant line of inquiry, 
because they didn't see their protest as an issue relevant to them being female. At the start here, we've got Kerry Langer, who was married at one time to one of the most famous student protesters of the period, Albert Langer. Kerry was involved in the protests before being involved with him. Following Kerry, you'll hear Martha Kinsman. Did you feel like at Monash there were a lot of women involved? Um, well, quite a few. But, I mean, I didn't... Um, in terms of women, I'd have to think about it. I mean, I didn't feel dominated by the men particularly, I don't think, or not in the sense that they had anything over me just because they were men. It didn't seem to be a male thing. But definitely women were just less comfort- less confident just because they were at the time. I don't feel that people jumped on women because they were women or particularly put them down because they were women. I mean, maybe I just didn't notice. But I hung around with the men anyway, or sort of more men in the leadership, I guess. And I never really thought about it as that they were men. Like, they were people in that sense that I knew. Maybe some of them were sayings on the sexist things or whatever but it just isn't something that stands out to me in the communist party there's a book by mira turner ian turner's wife called the hammer the sickle and the washing up which was about how women in the communist party were expected to do the washing up and make the tea and make the sandwiches and stuff i don't recall much of that in student politics Certainly there were a lot more men involved and certainly in terms of theoretical analysis, I don't remember any women other than Jill Jolliffe and possibly me, um, although I can't remember writing anything at the time, but I don't remember any women getting very involved. On the other hand, some women did reflect on how they felt gender had an impact. Uh, When you think about the Monash Labor Club kind of as a, as a group, um, were there? did you feel like there were as many women involved as men or was there a, a more of a disparity one way or the other? There was more of a, di- more of a disparity and often um, some of the females became involved because they were girlfriends. So um, initially when the impact of the women's lib movement started to seep in. Um, Some of the males that had dominated the Labor Club were pretty dismissive of that. And it was was younger females that had just um, started at uni that started to speak up and express themselves. But it did take hold. Do you think your involvement with... The Monash Labor Club um, and, and the, the involvement of obviously lots of other women as well, even if you weren't kind of half of it. Was it, not was it, how important was it for you and other women to, to be there, do you think? What sort of an, uh, an impact did you have? I think it was um, very important and I think that... Um I mean, I I did get up and speak at at meetings and I think that um, we were listened to and certainly 
uh, demonstrations outside of the campus. I think members of the public, you know, uh, took note that it wasn't just males. Mm. It was a combination of um, males and females that were thinking about these issues and taking a stand and uh, protesting. I do recall on campus, though, when we did have um, one of these mass meetings, Albert, you probably recall Albert Langer, um, I remember him walking through the crowd and there were a number of females that were involved, including the woman that became his wife and uh, a number of other females. And I remember someone from the um, conservative side of politics commenting very loudly, there goes uh, Langer and his harem. So that was the, that at that stage was the attitude to from outside the Labor Club to the women that were involved right. in the Labor Club. But, Great. you know, that certainly changed once the influence of the women's liberation movement started to filter through. Do you think that it was significant that women were involved? Unfortunately, women weren't significant. I mean, you know, like this was... It's a patriarchal society and... The men were doing it all. The women were there in a... um, There were a few women who stood up, you know. um, Oh, I can't remember their names. But there were some women who stood out um, and spoke up but they were probably considered a bit way out there, you know. Um, but women were definitely there looking after their men probably. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it's such a different time. You know, you, you didn't even think of it like that. It was a man's world and they were they were the important ones. And I'm sure that a lot of women could have been getting up and making more noise, but it, it wasn't really done. Do you think the protests would have been different if they had just been men present at the 4th of July, for instance? Yeah, well, I think they might have been more violent because young men liked bravado and they might have done a bit more of provoking horses and I mean, they were throwing marbles under the horses anyway. How different do you think it would have been at Monash if women hadn't got involved? Would the student movement still have had the the energy or the ability to do stuff? Oh, no, it'd be much more, I reckon it'd be much more marginalised. I think that um, the contributions that some women made really um, propelled that, the, the, the Monash Labor Club. And I think that some of the courageous acts that some women took, you know, actually had quite an impact. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. 
you can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. <laughs>